0: Okay, let's uh, begin. Picking up from last night, I felt like entitling this evening's talk "The Son of Dependent Origination," <laughs> but we didn't. <clears throat> okay, we're picking up from last last night. So, really, I'll just I'll quickly, and I do mean quickly, go through the four previous links, just so we we know where we are. Remember, I talked a little. Well, I I talked a little bit about. (laughs) I've been talked a lot about ignorance and um, all the other links, but I talked about ignorance as a state of ignoring, composed of the asavas. Remember the asavas. I gave you that very unedifying image of incontinence, in the sense of them leaking continuously. This is what we leak onto the world. The, the asavas of ignorance, the asavas of sensuality, the asava of the desire to be, and finally the asava of opinions. This is what we're leaking onto the world. Now these are very much engaged in creating the second of the links, which is the sankharas. The sankharas being the formations, the habit patterns, that which we construct Out of those previous dispositions, in a sense, the dispositions of ignorance and its components, what we construct over the course of our lifetime. So in some senses, what we see at this present moment is a result of the constructions of habit patterns. Habit patterns and habit tendencies being one of the major problems that we're having to deal with. When we're looking at what's going on, we're often looking at habituated tendencies. Habituated tendencies to ignore, habituated tendencies to grasp, habituated tendencies to avoid, and so on and so forth. And I'll come, because this is going to come out much later in one of the other links. Then I spoke about consciousness being dependent on the arising of the sankharas or of the formations and they are codependently arising they arise together both world that was referred to a few nights ago in that quotation I gave you you know about the world being in this fathom long the world which is the world the samsaric world and consciousness arise together and mostly in this particular description that's being given here in, in terms of paticca samuppada, dependent origination then the world is the world of our habit tendencies our habits this is what we live and I really want to make this very clear and get it through to you this is what we live for the most part and this is why we find ourselves so constricted You know, in our daily lives we are constricted because we are constricted by the habit patterns which we keep repeating again and again and again and again Something I've referred to, I think, ever since the first night you've been here, that this is what we're doing. We're doing the same things again and again and again, and hence ending up with similar results. Then I spoke about, actually, what occurs out of the concatenation, the coming together of these three other factors, is the blueprinting of mind and body. This is where we finished off last night. The blueprinting of mind and body, nama rupa, Rupa being form or body. Nama being any mental events which are occurring. So all of these are being laid down. In a sense, right now, you're still laying them down. You're laying them down. And in some sense, is writing out something which is, if it's not changed, is going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy for the future. If there is determinism in Buddhism, uh, then the determinism is when you don't do anything about things because things pan out in a way um, according to the causes and conditions which have been laid down and when we talk about nama rupa as being the fourth link we're the laying down of the causes and conditions for what is going to come in the future so we're now on to the fifth link which in Pali is called salayatana. Salayatana is, is the six sense bases. Now, in a way, what you've got to hear is the stream coming through from ignorance, or see is the stream coming through from ignorance, conditioning our forms of perception, conditioning the way that we see, conditioning the way that we hear, conditioning the way that we taste and touch, and so on, and also the way that we approach mental stuff, because there is a sixth sense in Buddhism, the five usual physical senses, plus this sixth sense, which is the mental sense sphere, the sensing of mental objects as they arise. So there's already a predisposition to sense them in a particular way. So the ayatanas, ayatana means a sphere, a sense sphere. In other words, it encloses whatever is occurring So there is an audible sphere where we enclose sounds and we interpret them in particular ways, either as irritating or pleasant, and the same with taste, touch and smell, and also with our mental sense stuff that arises. So if you think your senses are neutral, forget it. Your senses are conditioned. Your senses are conditioned because actually at the back of it is all this mental stuff going on. In some later Indian text, you'll find this idea of reality is continuously imprinted with mental stuff. So we don't actually see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, or sense anything anew. Now, there's something I touched on when we were talking about the aggregates and talking about the personality, and the way that is formed and not self is that we are not experiencing things new, that things are being experienced in a particular way which has been laid down as a result, if you like, of a previous cycle of the 12 links that we are now looking at. So in a way, what you've got is not just one cycle, but cycle upon cycle upon cycle. And you've got something like a loop. Um, I always say that Buddhists believe in loopy time. Because loopy time is what it's about. (laughs) Um, Because no one particular cycle of dependent origination will give you the whole story. Because remember, each cycle of dependent origination is one moment in time. This is what it is. So it's moment by moment conditioning that we're engaging in. Now, that's a big thought if you actually take that on board, that we're engaging in this moment-to-moment conditioning. And our senses are not um, just giving us data. They're not just giving us data. In other words, if you like, what is happening is that reality is being imprinted with stuff from before, particularly the sankharas, particularly the formations or all of those previous habits that we bring to bear on things. So we don't just see something, we have a habit of seeing things in a particular way. We don't just taste things, we have a habit of tasting them in a particular way. depressing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, in fact, people who know you will know these habits very well. Somebody who knows you well, almost predictably, that you're going to like X and not like Y and so on and so forth. So that's the sense spheres. That's the the fifth link in the chain. It starts to get more interesting in a minute. (laughs) The next one is because, of course, that all of our senses touch something, come in contact with something. And this is literally the contact. Pasa is the word in Pali. Pasa means to contact, to literally impinge, to palpate. So our eyeball is palpating the visible. Palpating means to touch. You know, our ears are palpating the audible, and you know, and the same for all of the other senses. Our minds are palpating mental stuff, which is arising and falling away, and arising and falling away. So it's constantly coming into contact. And this is where it really gets interesting. And this is the bit I'm going to spend most of the most of the time this evening speak, speaking about, because dependent upon contact arises tanha. Tanha is this word which is usually translated as craving or desire. So craving and desire is the immediate result of contact. This is conditioned. So, for example, we are conditioned for to, to crave things we like. We are conditioned to avoid things we dislike. And then there we are, there's a kind of neutral grey area, which is the things that we neither like nor dislike. In other words, there is pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant or unpleasant. I've missed out a, a particular link here, so you have to forgive me. Because actually what is given rise to is feeling at this stage, and then there's contact. So the next stage after contact is feeling, which is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither which gives rise then to the craving which I spoke about. So let's just clarify that just in case I've confused anybody. So we have the six sense bases. The six sense bases come into contact. Contact is going to give rise to feeling, to Vedana. Now, Vedana actually is something we're going to spend a little bit of time with over the next couple of days, looking at feeling, examining feeling as it arises in the body. Three forms of feeling you've just heard me say. Pleasant Unpleasant and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And there are six types of Vedana. Three physical and three mental. So there's pleasant and unpleasant associated and neither associated with the physical. Pleasant, unpleasant and neither associated with the mental as well. So every thought and feeling, I'm using that in a sort of more emotional sense, comes with a, with a tone to it. And in many ways, what we can see Vedana as is a sensation tone. Everything is toned for us. So nothing is, in a sense, highly neutral. In a way, the neutral is that which we ignore. So the polarity of most of our experience is divided simply in terms of I like, I dislike. Again, I think it's rather sad, isn't it? Uh, That is actually the full range of our experience, for the most part. If you can think of another one, tell me. (laughs) I like it, or I dislike it, or I don't even recognise it, which is the kind of middle ground. I don't even see it, because it doesn't impinge on the strong sense of like or dislike. Now, Vedana, of course, can be translated as sensation, and it's probably a better translation in English, not because feeling is inaccurate, but because feeling gives us the sense that it's emotional. And at this stage it isn't. So on a bare sensation of like and dislike actually becomes the fully blown stories of emotions based on them. So in other words, we build our emotional narratives on these simple sensations that are coming to us. A bare sensation of like or dislike or neither, which is coming to us. Now this is, as I say, where it becomes interesting because what we now move into is into tanha or craving as being the next link. So we've done link five, which is the link of salayatana, which is the sixth sense basis. We've done link six, which is contact, link seven, which is vedana, and now link eight, which is going to be, of course, the very important link of tanha in this chain. And remember, the reason why, in a sense, it sounds so pessimistic is because this is a description of sangsara. This is what happens. This is what happens when we are sangsara Sounds like a dance, doesn't it? You know, come and sangsara with me. <laughs> you know, so this is what is happening when we are sangsaring. Now, the word tanha it doesn't really come across in English, But actually in the Pali term and the Sanskrit term, has an acute pathos to it. It really does show an acute pathos of the human condition, which is driven by craving. The word literally, and I have said this previous nights, but I'll just again reiterate it, the word literally means unquenchable thirst. This is what the word tanha means, indicating, of course, that it's quite different from something else, which is a literal thirst, which has actually had another name in Pali, (coughs) which is pipasa, which can be quenched. If I have a thirst, which is a literary physical thirst, I can quench it with a glass of water. This thirst, by its very nature, will never be quenched. We will be driven onwards and onwards and onwards and onwards and onwards. Always moving to another object. Yeah, and I'm not talking just simply about physical objects here or material objects. It's always seeking for a new object. To try and find satisfaction. Now I don't know if this sounds familiar in context with your experience, but actually for most of us this is actually what is going on. That we are looking interminably for a terminal point which can never be reached, where we'll go sort of, I've come to the end of all the searching. This is what I really want. Now, for the most part, that doesn't happen. The ways that we look for it, we direct our attention in unwise ways. We direct it towards material things, because that's what our society offers us. We direct it to fame, wealth, position, power. You know, All of these sorts of things are the sorts of things that we crave. I think I said on the first night that actually this craving is so interminable it can't be satisfied simply because it's not simply a case of not getting what you want but getting what you want even when you get what you want you're still craving for something else it's as if the pleasure and i do use that word guardedly because the word pleasure is fine the pleasure lasts for a short period of time you know if you get that desired object And again, examine this in terms of your own experience. When you've craved a particular thing or craved to go on a certain holiday or to be with somebody, how long does the frisson last? Days? Weeks? Hours? Minutes? (laughs) Now I'm being very cynical here um, because I think it's actually very short. Before there's a, a tendency of the mind, even if not physically, to want to move on to something else, to crave something else. Now because of this is because of this is Buddhism, of course, craving comes in three forms. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just have one form of craving. Come that would be too simple. You've got to have three forms of craving. Uh, the first form of craving is what's called Kamma Tandha. Karmatanha is... Well, the word karma should be very familiar to you. I mean, it's a very famous text, an Indian text, which is usually only the salacious bits are translated. It's called the Kama Sutra. Um, The Kama Sutra deals with sensuality. It's a a book for the Brahmin about town, basically. (laughs) (laughs) How to take your pleasures legitimately. (laughs) Yeah, which obviously includes sexuality, but it includes boring stuff like how to set up your kitchen. <laughs> um, so, karma is there anything to do with sensuality? However, you know, sensuality covers many, many things. It's also the quest for something new, constant stimulation. This is something I certainly see in the West: is this quest for constant stimulation. Part of the problem we have when sitting on a cushion, being told to direct your attention towards something simple like watch your breath and watch it with curiosity. The mind is going, boring! (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to do that! (laughs) By the way, you're laughing. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But uh, this is what the mind is doing. It does not want to stay with something simple. It's craving stimulation. Wanting to be stimulated. The quest for new things continuously. But overlooking the new in the familiar. In other words, the very things that are under our nose. So tanha is exposure to mental and novel mental stimuli. And it's the desire for that the craving for that and i think you see that craving very very clearly when you sit on a cushion and are told to direct your attention to some simple object it raises its head very very quickly notice how the mind is projected into thinking about things i mean come on a retreat center what else is there but food (laughs) <laughs> yeah. they, these are the big horizons in the day, you know, <laughs> you know waiting for that dinner gong. <laughs> Again, there's nervous laughter here, <laughs> I see. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that craving for something else, craving for, for the sensual goodies as well, craving for excitement, craving for diversion. Now, as you can see, it takes many forms in our lives. You know, it doesn't just have to be the craving for the nice goodies that the Western world offers us and all the nice sensual things it offers us, but it can be this craving for stimulation. And in a way, the more and more stimulation we get, the more and more deadened often we become. It's like we get, I don't know, sort of calluses on our mental sense. Um, in a way which doesn't allow us to feel. Um, otherwise, I'm sure people would not be able to look at some of the things they do in some of the graphic images that you see of violence and all sorts of things which are portrayed if there wasn't this anesthetization almost to you know, some aspects of the stimuli which are being presented. And one of the things, I mean, it's very interesting if you actually look back, for example, say at cinema, thirty, forty years ago, and just the lack of the graphic within it, and how more graphic it has become. This is not a critique. It's just this is this is what has just actually happened. The more and more stimulation it has become, the more and more special effects it has become, and the more and more we require. You know, in fact, often these days cinema is rated by how good the special effects are, not by how good the story is. (laughs) And that's just one example. And we can think of many, many examples. We can think of the way... um, Walking around any big city, and I certainly used to see this when I was teaching at universities and seeing students completely plugged in all day into some kind of iPod, telephone... You know, no matter what it is, they're plugged in most of the time. There is constant stimulation going on. And of course, what happens is when there is lack of stimulation, there is nullness. There is a sense of crashing boredom as well that comes about. Now, I would actually say that one of the good things about coming to a retreat centre is to be bored. Now it sounds odd, but I really mean that in the sense that to come to, to experience something that normally we will try to avoid at all costs. You know, The radio will go on, the television will go on, the newspaper will be picked up, the book will be opened. You know, we never really get a chance to experience boredom and come out the other side of it. Because there is an other side to boredom. And the other side to boredom is interest in what is actually happening here. Beginning to develop interest in this. I remember myself when sitting in one of the monasteries I was doing a retreat in one of the monasteries in South India and I did a 24-hour meditation of looking at a scene just out of the window watching everything that was passing. <laughs> yeah, It sounds boring, doesn't it? <laughs> but just watching one particular piece of land with everything that moves through it, all the changes of light, all of the sounds that arise, just watching that through the night and through the day as well. And yes, it's crashingly boring to start with, but then something comes alive in you that starts to respond and really starts to see. So the downside of Kamatanha is this constant craving for innovation, for stimulation, for something new, which leaves us actually not seeing the beauty, of the dynamism, and the vibrancy of where we actually are at all. So stimulation takes us away from where we actually are. So that's the, four, that's the first of your cravings. The second of your cravings is the Bhavatana, which is the craving to be. Now in its grossest form, the craving to be can be the craving for something like eternal life, you know, the desire to be me forever. You know? uh, and you get this theories in both Western religious you know Western religious thinking, you get it certainly in Indian religious thinking, the idea that there is some kind of eternal substance which is you. Which will go on continuously um, in Indian thought. This is called the Atman. Some of you might be familiar with this, particularly if you've done any yoga, because I'll often talk about the Atman. <clears throat> in Western religious thinking, it's more often related to the soul, the idea of the eternal soul. So that's a kind of gross idea of the idea of something that's going on forever. Now it might be, for example, the craving or the desire to perpetuate yourself in some other way, even if you don't believe in the immortality of something like a soul or a self. Here, I mean, the desire to perpetuate yourself through your good works. The desire to perpetuate yourself through your children, being another one, how to live vicariously through your children. because they will go on and of course they will go on and, you know, and they will have their own children and so on and so forth and you know, this sense of there is an endlessness to it you know, that you set in motion. The desire to be remembered by others you know, in some way or some form. Now what this is linked to is the desire for self-assertion all of this linked to the desire for self-assertion it's linked to the egotism which we've spoken about before you know, the, the, the idea of the self going on is the idea of an ego going on in fact a little package with a stamp on it saying John that's going on into the future you know, this is the rather crude idea but in other words it's a sort of self-assertive idea of I'm going to be me forever I find that an appalling thought <laughs> you know Um, It's the desire for wealth, it's the desire for power, it's the desire for recognition as well. All of these are included in Bhava Tanda in this idea. It's in a sense you want a good day. On a good day you want to go on forever in some way or another. You get up, and this is so good, I want to be me forever. (laughs) You know. And that might be through attaining of some role or some situation or some power or wealth or some aspect of control over others. All of this is associated with bhava tanha. There is a downside, which is the third of the cravings, which is vibhava tanha. Now this means the desire not to be. And these are interlinked. I'll say a little bit more about this in a second. These are not separate entities. They are all interlinked. So, the desire not to be, at its most sad, and its most sad manifestation, is suicide. That's the desire not to be. In other ways, it can be manifested as aggressive tendencies, annihilatory tendencies in behavior as well. Attempts to not only annihilate yourself in some way, and I don't mean literally physically, but to nullify yourself in some way and I'm sure we can think of all of those and how they relate perhaps to Kama Can you think of anything there? Drugs and drink, yeah. Over-stimula- over-stimula- yeah. Over-st- being overstimulated as well, where in a sense there is a loss of that sense of self, All of these, of course, are based on the notion of a self. The desire to annihilate a self, the desire to self-assert a self, the desire to have pleasurable, stimulating experiences are all related to self. So all of these come down to, again, what's called in Buddhist terms, Sakayadity, the self-identity view. That there is something there which is fixed in some way. So all of these are mixed up. You know, in fact, often you could run through the whole gamut of these cravings in a day. You know, the desire, you know, for example, to have some, I don't know, let's give you some crude examples, a desire to be in the sense that I want um, to have some kind of position of power in the place where I work. A little bit more say, to be a little bit more self-assertive about where I am at work. However, there's the time when you come home and you just want to crash out. You, know, you don't want to. You know, people switch on the television and sit there with a drink. <laughs> you know, all of this is a manifestation of the desire not to be. Uh, and of course, you know, at its very strongest point, this can be reach very strong addictive levels where the desire not to be it becomes an addictive behaviour. You know I do not want to be because being is a tough game it's a tough thing to be involved in you know I spoke about remember I spoke about the self being a self and what it means to be a self is a tough business you know you constantly constantly got to try and keep yourself together yeah you know, whilst actually wanting to fall apart yeah so it's this idea of trying to keep yourself together to keep yourself together and it's a lot of effort required to do that and to be somebody now of course with Vibhawatanha Tanha there is that desire to drop all of that and that can become very very addictive and it can be done through Kama Tanha through sensory stimuli yeah it can be so easily accomplished through the sensory stimuli. It doesn't have to be the drink and the drugs. It can be the music and the, uh, the cinema and the entertainment and everything else. Something which stops you from having to think about you. Because thinking about you is a tough business, as you've probably gathered by being here on retreat. You know, when you're here on retreat, heaven forbid, everything's stripped away. Here you are with you. <laughs> and it can be a frightening business and a difficult business. Just being here with you, and with no speech, with no no talk around you, no entertainment, no stimuli, you know, apart from that which you might sneak in when you come here. <laughs> so, I'm being realistic about this. That's. <laughs> In other words, we have all these props because actually being thrust back on our own sense of being without all of these props is very, very difficult. So as a consequence of that, we are craving and desiring and craving and desiring, and this is one of our chief modes of being. And this is actually the point at which the Buddha says that we can start to do something about it. We can start to do something. The second of the ennobling truths becomes the truth of the cause of Dukkha. And that cause of Dukkha is readily identified as its most proximate form, in its most proximate form as being tanha, being craving. So this is where we can get a purchase on the problems that we have, is examine our psychopathology of craving that we're all engaged in. I'm not saying... Any particular individuals, more than anybody else, everybody is engaged in this. And it comes as a complex which is actually leading on to the next link. Hopefully I'll get this finished tonight, otherwise it'll be a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> we come to the next link, which is upadhana. Upadana means clinging. It also means entanglement. Now, I just want to give you a tiny bit of background to this, which might make it a bit more interesting, might not. But the word word "upadana," like lots and lots of the words that the Buddha uses in describing this chain of dependent origination, is not of his own invention. It's not something he uses. It's not even particularly an ordinary word. It's a word that's used in Hinduism. Actually, it was Brahmanism at that time. It became Hinduism much later. It was a religion of the Brahmins, a religion of the highest class of Indian society. It's a word that's used by the Brahmins, just as the word sankara is a word which is used by Brahmins, just as the word karma is a word that's used by the Brahmins. And all of these words referred to something that went on in the Buddhist time, which is a lot of ritual. Yeah. hence the reason why and I'm always amazed at this when you actually hear this uh, what happened to Buddhism over the centuries because the Buddha says there is one particular form of clinging which um, we ought to look at very closely which is clinging to rituals and rites yeah. clinging to rituals and rites yeah. when we look at the history of what happened in Buddhism then we see the growth of all this stuff coming back and the Buddha was very very clear about ditching most of this stuff you know, as being of any importance whatsoever. Now all of these terms, and this is where I want to go because I think it might actually add something for you. All of these terms referring to Brahmin ritual. The word sanskara was literally the performance of a ritual. So the Buddha turns it into a habit. Yeah. You know? When we engage in a sankara, instead of engaging in a a very profound ritual which kept the gods happy, which was the whole idea of what was going on in India at that time, um, he turns it into being just a habit that people engage in. Karma was the outcome. You either did your ritual well or you did it badly. So it was good karma or bad karma. You kept the gods happy or you didn't keep the gods happy the Buddha turns it into a moral, ethical force in the sense of he places intention at the heart of action. And the word Upadana is no different because the word Upadana literally means to fuel something. And it described what went on in India at that time, which was that in a Brahmin household or in a Brahmin temple, there would be three ritual fires kept burning. If you go to a Hindu temple even to these day, this day, and in fact even Hindu marriage always takes place around a, 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 um, a, a small fire upon which mantras are said around it and upon which things are thrown such as ghee which is clarified butter And sesame seeds and coconut and oil and all sorts of stuff go onto the fire whilst these mantras are being intoned. And the fire has to be kept burning. Uh, And keeping the fire burning, in other words, putting fuel on the fire, is called upadana. Now, I don't know if you remember and recall, but I refer to everything is burning. Everything is burning with the three fires of greed, aversion and delusion. (coughs) What the Buddha is saying is by clinging by being entangled, by grasping, you're doing a very good job of keeping your three fires of greed, aversion and delusion going. In other words, we keep fueling them. We keep placing fuel just as literally as putting wood, new wood on a fire. And the actual literal meaning of the word Upadana means to fuel a material process. So literally what we're doing is we're fueling this process of greed, aversion and delusion when we continue to cling and to grasp. Now in the text there's many, many different ways that the Buddha describes clinging and some of them are very graphic about the ways, for example, monkeys were trapped in India at that time. And there's two principal images which are used. Which have a lot to say about our condition. I'll give you the, the most obvious one first, which is that if you want to trap a monkey, what you do is you take something like this—a bowl, but it has a narrow neck—and you place some food at the bottom of it. You bury it slightly in the ground, and so the monkey can get its hand in through the neck. And what it does is it grasps something like this. Say this is a banana at the bottom of it. it. Grasps it, and now because it's got a clenched fist, it can't get its paw out anymore. Now, all the monkey's got to do is let go, but it doesn't. And so it's trapped. (laughs) Silly monkey. Actually, it's a very good description of you and I. In other words, we're trapped by that which we don't let go of. So the monkey, just like the monkey is caught and trapped by that which it won't let go of, and it could actually get away just by dropping the banana or whatever it is, the fruit at the bottom, and pulling its hand out, pulling its hand free. Then we too are trapped by that which we don't let go of. We refuse to, now here's a very un PC word, word in the modern world we refuse to renounce it, we refuse to let it go at all so that we suffer from the weight of oppression of feeling trapped but it's our own entrapment and this is why it's an entanglement we're entangled with the things that we have and this is not just stuff and i mean this by all the the, the bits and pieces that you have around your house um, which people cling to tenaciously even when you don't like it and I must I must share this with you because I heard this conversation over my garden fence from about three or four gardens away. And it was one of my neighbours saying to another neighbor, I can't possibly lend you that. I don't even use it myself. <laughs> How tracked is that? <laughs> you know, so we're trapped even by the things that we, we don't like and don't want anymore and are absolutely no use to us, but we still tenaciously cling to them. Now, that's the obvious stuff. That's the material stuff. But then there is all the mental stuff as well, which we refuse, in a way, to let go of. Like our senses of identity. You know, like our habits. So we're deeply, deeply attached To our habits. We cling, actually, and this is part of the Buddha's diagnosis, we cling sometimes to our pain. Because even our pain makes us feel substantial. I am who I am because I know I'm in pain. In some way. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Both physically and mentally. We cling to those things. Because almost better the pain I know than the one I don't. People cling to their situations even when they're being deeply abused because in some ways it still gives them a sense of identity of who they are. I mean, this is deeply sad I and mean, there's no there's no joking here at all. This is deeply, deeply sad the way that we often cling to that which actually causes us pain, causes us distress, causes us... Let's use the old-fashioned word that's often in the, in, the, in the translations, suffering. It often causes suffering. And we hold on to them and we do it again and again and again. Now, think of the habits that people develop, both ourselves and others, that we know are unwholesome, that do us harm. And we see others doing themselves harm in similar ways, yet they tenaciously cling to these ways of being, you know, in a sense, because there is nothing seen as on the horizon which could supplant or be better than that. Now, I want to make it clear at this stage, and none of this is in a sense moralistic. The Buddha is simply making a diagnosis. This is how it is. You know? This is the way things are. And in fact, there's a deep sadness to the way he diagnoses these things. Because it actually he's saying, it can be different for each and every one of us, it can be different. If we cease to cling, if we cease to grasp, if we cease to hold on in these particular ways that we do, and hold on particularly to the habit patterns and the propensities to think in certain ways and to behave in certain ways that continue to perpetuate our distress. Now that's a big ask. It's a big ask to, make it, to, to, to get us to look at all of these habit patterns. Habit patterns are emerging, and habit patterns are breaking up, and habit patterns are emerging, and habit patterns are breaking up. It's a very big ask to make us look at that. But this is, in a sense, what we're having to do to see what we're bringing to experience, what we're clinging to. Now there are all sorts of different forms of clinging. There's clinging to identity. I'm not going to go into the whole list because it's another list, believe it or not. <laughs> There's clinging to identity. Let's pick out the important ones: clinging identity, clinging to identity, and clinging to views. Now, this is another one: clinging to particular views about the way things are, not actually beginning to look and see how things are, but clinging to an idea of how they may be. Now, Buddhism is, in a sense, and the Buddha's path is always very realistic, in a sense it's trying to get you to look and to see and to contact with your experience, no matter how confused your experience might be at this moment. Now, obviously, and one of the states really of looking at this state of delusion I actually personally don't like the word delusion sometimes when I write about it I try and translate it again into something I think that adds much more of the feeling to it it's much more of a state of confusion actually rather than delusion you know we're confused I mean, here's the scenario you're, you know that um, here you are that you're taken off somewhere in a helicopter and you're dumped in a landscape and you don't know where you are, and you've gone somehow got to try and find your way around and survive. That's called birth. <sighs> yeah, in the sense that here you are, you're kind of dumped into the world, and you're trying to find your way around. The only parameters you've got to find your way around is the stuff that's proffered to you by your societies, by our cultures, by the languages of our cultures. These are the only ways that we can find our way around. So there is no... I think there's, it's completely understandable how we find ourselves in the situations that we do because we simply use the tools that are available. However, what the Buddha is attempting to do is give a different map, show you the, the topography, show you a way of guiding you around the topography, which will help you to survive the vicissitudes of life, the kind of constant ebb and flow and the, the things which are going to come to us in life without so much pain involved in it. This is what it's attempting to do. So it's very realistic. And one of the things, obviously, in attempting to show us is, is the... Suffering that is created, the pain and the anguish and the distress that is created by continuing to cling to things and ideas and ways of behaviour which ultimately are destructive and actually arise out of confusion. So, one of the things that's coupled with mindfulness is something called sati sampa you know, clear and knowing. You know, this is what you're aiming at, satisampajana. Clear comprehension is one way of translating it. A clear comprehension of where you are and what you're doing in this world. You know, rather than the confused state that we're in. So that is clinging. <laughs> it's ra- that, that complex of, of contact, feeling, craving and clinging is probably the most important complex in this whole chain. Because that is one that certainly when we're sitting on our cushions, we can get a very, very clear look at here. Because what you're going to see is the arising of many, many different forms of habit as we sit here, that we bring to bear on our situation. We can see the craving for stimuli just in that moment when you say, I'm bored, I'd like dinner, Just in these brief moments, when these things come up, perhaps they're not so brief, actually. (laughs) When these things come up, you see what the mind is doing. is craving something, clinging to forms of belief and behavior and thought patterns which will perpetuate the distress that we're in. Now, all of these lead to the next link in the chain, which is known as Bawa, or Becoming. Becoming is, in a sense, all the things we're doing to perpetuate that sense of being that we have coming from the rest of the chain. It's trying to consolidate, trying to get what you want in life. All of the machinations that you go through in ordinary life to manipulate things so that they come out to suit your desires. Yeah to suit your cravings, to suit your clingings. Again, it's something we can look at quite easily in ordinary life, the way that we try to manipulate situations to get things the way we want them to be. To manipulate others to suit our purposes. All of this is implied in Bawa, in the sense of becoming. Becoming. Is this idea of manipulation, of, of pushing things in a particular way to try and get the outcome? And no matter what you do, whether you're successful in that or not, you come into the next part, which is called jati, birth. Into the next moment, in other words. Here you are, in the next moment. You've either got it or you haven't. What you wanted. And even if you get it, and even if you haven't, and this is the end of the chain, by the way, um, even if you haven't, you get something called Jaramarana, which is dissolution, decay, and death. What that's really saying is, even if you get the desired situation that you want, the position that you want, the thing that you want, it all comes to an end. Because it's impermanent. No matter what it is, it's going to, because it's dependent on causes and conditions, it's going to decay and eventually fall apart. What we've got in this cycle, and then you go back again, of course, if you do it as a a circle, you come back to ignorance. And you start then again. And this is every moment. Again, toying with translations, I've toyed with lots and lots of different translations of this. One that tries to bring out the spirit of what's involved in this, and one of them that I think brings out particularly the spirit of it, even if not the actual literal- literalness of it, is situational patterning. Because this is how every situation that you find yourself in, moment to moment, is patterned. It's patterned through these psychological states, through this psychological conditioning. Some of these are very metaphorical, like birth, becoming, coming into a situation, old age and death, dissolution and final decay, going out of existence. You know, that is what's, requ- what's meant by that. So the whole cycle shows us what is going on on a moment-to-moment basis. It also gives you a clue of how you can change it if you look at it very closely. Where you can change it, of course, is at the link between Vedana and Tanna, between feeling and craving. What automatically happens with that link, usually, is we feel something and then we act on it. So we automatically, as I've joked about it a number of times so far over these evening talks, I don't find myself observing in ordinary life the craving for a chocolate bar. I find myself eating it. Now I don't go craving, 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 craving chocolate bar. (laughs) I just find myself munching a chocolate bar or whatever it happens to be. So there's no kind of awareness of the arising of that from a stimulus from a stimulus which is the stimulus of Vedana of wanting something of finding something pleasant on your meditation cushion you will see Vedana immediately as soon as you get the feeling of say unpleasant sensation in the legs if you have to do sitting cross-legged or sitting kneeling in this there's perhaps the automatic desire to want to move that comes about. And I'm not talking about anything where your leg's going to drop off. I'm talking about just unpleasant sensations that arise simply through sitting day in, day out, as we has been doing, where, of course, you know um, you get these sensations arising. <clears throat> now, the automatic... Vedana, the Vedana arises, gives rise to an automatic craving to avoid. And coming back again to craving here. Let's go back to it. Because craving isn't just the craving to have. It's the craving to avoid as well. As Freud says about his pleasure principle. The pleasure principle has hardly anything to do with pleasure. It's about the avoidance of pain. You know? Very similarly... In when we start talking about tanha, when we start talking about craving, the automatic tendency, in the way I always almost put it across to you here, is that we think of it in terms of what we want, what we need. I mean, I put it to you in the three terms of, of the three types of tanha, the three types of craving. But craving in particular is the craving to avoid. Clinging is the clinging to things I want to avoid as well. You know, so we are deeply, actually probably... More than the things we want in life, we're moving through life trying to avoid things we don't want rather than just trying to get things that we want here. And so the possibility of the severance of this chain and thereby, in a sense, Sangsara dropping apart, you know, because this is how Sangsara is created, Sangsara is certainly starting to fall apart on you, comes by staying with the feeling and not necessarily going towards the craving, the craving to avoid or the craving to have. One of the things that certainly has been shown even scientifically is that even strong desires have a very short life. Yes, They arise and they last fairly momentarily before they pass away. They might come back again, but actually the intensity of them is a fairly small period. I forget how long it is, but it is really quite short. However, what happens is we get the craving and like Pavlov's dog, we act on it. We're trained to act on it. We're conditioned to act. So... The chance that we get of actually beginning to break that chain is by learning to observe the feeling and to see how the Vedana, the sensation or the feeling, changes. Because it won't remain the same. It will not remain static. And that's where we're going tomorrow. We're going to be looking at Vedana, particularly bodily Vedana. Now, some particular insight meditation traditions use this as the totality of their practice. The sort of stuff that we've done, they don't even bother with. One particular tradition, which some of you may have even been on, or certainly heard about, called the Goenka tradition of insight meditation, will spend their whole time concentrating on bodily sensation. Just the arising of bodily sensation and the passing away of bodily sensation. And this is what we're going to be doing for the next two days, looking at bodily sensation. Okay. There you go. You found out who did it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to again open it to some questions, um, see if there is anything. We have a slightly longer period, but not much longer than last night. Yeah, Nick and then. No, sanya isn't in the chain. Yeah. San, sanya is, is an oddity here. Sanya, for those, again, who are grappling with these Pali words, sanya is this perception and discrimination that I spoke about, which is the third of the aggregates, which make up what it means to be a self. Here, Now, that's not found directly in this chain. It's implied throughout it. Well, that's the Tibetan interpretation, which is from from the perspective of the early teachings, isn't exactly matching. Yeah. The other question was, um, you know, the, the, the move from the last link of jaramarana to ignorance. If you see it in terms of from one life cycle to another, mm. it makes sense. The body dies and then is reborn. <coughs> Because the first thing in the next moment is ignorance again. Yeah. In other words, um, <clears throat> let me just expound on that, because that's an important point. I talked a little bit about last night about three-lifetime interpretation. So, for example, on the three-lifetime interpretation, literally the idea that you, are literally going to, that you are literally going to be reborn, then this is divided up, as I said. The first two links representing the past, the next eight links representing the present, and the last two links representing the future. And so by the time you get to birth, which is link number 11 here, that represents, according to a lot of the traditions, a literal rebirth. Now, there is lots of scope for interpretation here because there is a whole element, which I've mentioned to you very briefly, called the Abhidhamma within early Buddhist psychology. Which actually deals with this and it deals with it primarily as a metaphor for what is occurring moment to moment. So instead of three lifetimes, what it talks about is it all happening within one moment. Everything is happening within one moment. So, if you like, in every moment, every moment is being patterned by those 12 links, if you don't do anything about it. Now, it's not remaining the same, it's not static because everything is changing within it, within each. The cravings change, the habits will change, and consciousness will change in accordance to the habits and so on and so forth as we go through it. But what we find ourselves in the next moment, if you like, of rebirth, in other words, this is the idea of being literally born, reborn, moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, with the possibility of choice that I spoke about last night in terms of that Tibetan term bardo, which there is a Sanskrit equivalent, but I won't bother to give it to you. Um, When we're reborn in that moment-to-moment basis, everything that's carrying over starts again with ignorance, starts again with confusion. And I think that's probably the best way to hear it, rather than ignorance, which I find often a very unhelpful term, although I tried to explain it to you last night. Confusion is a much, much better way of looking at it. What we wind up with, with is being very, very confused. We don't see clearly. We don't see reality as it is. Even if we do, we don't often adhere to it. Even if we have a moment of insight, we often ignore that insight and go back to our habit patterns, back to the way. We go back, as I said last night, to our default option. We keep falling back on our default option. And that's why part of the whole process is this renunciation in a sense this letting go let's use that word it's probably more acceptable in many ways the letting go of these deeply deeply ingrained habit patterns by creating conditions in the sense where actually letting go isn't entirely accurate they let you go because you've put something else more positive in their place you've begun to see more clearly you've become to cease to be so confused about your sense of being in the world. There is not the confusion going on between who I am is what I have, who I am is what I do, who I am is a role, who I am is an identity, and so on and so forth. So you're chipping away at all of these things so that the confusion isn't so great moment to moment. And as a consequence of that, you're working on your leakiness as well the way that we leak the stuff onto the world. So that's, I think, that that's kind of an important point that's coming out, out of your question there. Yeah. There was one question there, then. Um, yeah, I was
1: wondering, can you break the, link, break, break the chain
0: at any of those points, or only um, that one point? There's so lots of discussion about this in the traditions. Um, some say that you might be able to break it between, not at any point, but you can break it at the link between contact and feeling. There could be a possibility of doing it there. The majority tend to, the majority of practitioners tend to think it's really, really only feasible at the point of where we have the sensation and don't automatically act on the craving that arises as a result of that. So dependent on the on the sensation arises a craving. Now, that is a moment of choice. Actually, the Vedan, I didn't go into detail about this because I went into detail about so many other things. But the Vedana itself in the sense we don't have a choice about. If if I put my hand on a hot plate, I will find it unpleasant. I don't have any choice about it unless I'm a masochist. (laughs) Then I might find it different. If I put my hand on something nice and soft and silky, I'll find it pleasant. We're wired in that way to do that. But we do have choices. Now, obviously, it wouldn't be wise to keep your hand on the hot plate, but but many of the things I'm really talking about, we have choices about whether we pursue them or not, whether we go down the line of stimulation, for example, and trying to gratify our senses, whether we go down the line of trying to create power and wealth for ourselves. All of these we have choices. They all arise from bare sensations. So in a sense what we're getting back to is a bare sensation and that is where we have the most opportunity of breaking the chain. If you can break the chain there, in a sense the whole chain drops apart. Yeah. Could
1: you break it with, um, at the
0: top with ignorance? Ignorance is the most difficult to get back to. And there's another way of looking at it which I haven't really described which is in the sense of working backwards through the chain. By dealing with the craving in some senses you're starting to deal with all of the other elements that are giving rise to it, which go back to the ignorance, and you're starting to have an effect of the diminishment of the confusion or ignorance that you're in. So it's kind of working backwards. There is another version of this, and this will take far too long. It'll take another two evenings to go through it, by the way. Um, There is another version of this which, which will take you backwards through the chain as well and show you a different perspective on it. Um, but yes you do actually ultimately end up affecting the ignorance and that's really what you're trying to get to but per se you can't have any grasp on that confusion because in a sense the confusion is where we are at this moment in time In, in many senses what you're really dealing with is only the manifestations of the confusion and dealing with the manifestations you might get back to the root cause of it Mm-hmm. Does,
1: it, um, does it
0: fall in with a particular historic tradition and if there are others are there other versions mm. could you give me a sort of historical outline about the question okay well the, the version I'm giving you is from the early texts it's primarily influenced by a reading from a text called the Abhidhamma, which grows up in the lifetime of the Buddha, starts to be formulated in the lifetime of the Buddha, reaches fruition um, in its totality about 200 years after the Buddha's death the kind of version I'm trying to give you is what I call prior to the emergence of a tradition about it now the, the, the most uh, the two pretty um, dominant traditions about, of interpretation are the Theravada interpretation which is a three lifetime interpretation which is the one that I said you know, the two links at the beginning and the two links at the end past and future with all the links in the middle being about the present. The Tibetans also have a very similar version which is the other dominant version and the one actually you will see portrayed on this wheel of life which was being referred to actually in an earlier part of one of the questions here. Those are the most two dominant traditions. They The Theravada tradition version, let's put this in perspective arises a thousand years after the Buddha's death. The Tibetan one comes even later. It arises somewhere around uh, 1400 years, 1300 years after the Buddha's death. So you've got a long historical gap in interpretation. Um, And you've got many, many other versions which are not so dominant, um, which in some senses play into these other versions, which are there up to about the 5th century. So there's a kind of a long historical chain of interpretation of this. This is considered, and I think this is worth again mentioning, something I mentioned last night, this is considered to be the most important teaching. You, know, the most, you, know, you heard me with the quotation from Ananda, poor old Ananda last night, getting it, you know, saying it was profound. <laughs> you know. um, it's considered to be the deepest teaching within it, and everything else really um, hangs on the teaching of dependent origination. All of the practices hang on the teaching of dependent origination as well. So I don't know if that helps a little bit to give you a historical perspective. It's reaching, in some sense, it's dealing with the asavas. It's actually dealing with the asavas. So if you like, incrementally, each time you manage to break the chain, each time you do it, each time I cease craving in a particular way, either the craving to have or the craving to avoid, each time I do that, I work on the asavas. I actually start to break those down, because I start to work on... And again, I haven't detailed this out. There's a lot more detail in this as well, which um, in some senses, if you want to go away and look at it, you'll find all this detail about it. That the types of clinging which are involved are <coughs> some of them are related to the asavas. So for example, views. We have the asava of views, remember? The asva of opinions. So at the moment I start to deal with the craving and the clinging, I start to break down my views about the world and how the world is for me. The moment I start to break down, for example, sensual desire as being the chief driving force behind a lot of my existence, I start to break down the asava of of sensuality as well. And all of them, in this dealing with it and coming back to the what actually is, the way it is happening... Um, to the fundamental way the phenomena are presenting themselves as not necessarily objects of desire or objects of aversion, but just phenomena, as they do deal with the asava of ignorance, ultimately. So it's actually, if you like, the final part is the ceasing to function of the asavas. The ceasing to function, if you like, of the contents of delusion, the contents of ignorance, or the contents of confusion there. That's the final part of it. That's that's the big one. <laughs> it's just a little task.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, Stephen. Um, just
1: a question about the kind of relationship that we're trying to cultivate um, in terms of mindfulness and in relation to our thoughts and feelings and sensations and so on. Because you talked about how um, some people use this word detached, a detachment to describe mm-hmm. the mindfulness. Yeah. Um, Analia. 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 Wrote, I read in his book Satipathana about how he uses the word detached mm. and this did seem to um, I didn't really agree with that in terms of my own experience of <coughs> what I felt mindfulness to be about mm-hmm. um, and I wondered whether um, I tend to think of it more as like an intimate presence because mm-hmm. um, when you're intimate with um, well another. If if someone else is in distress, for example, um, you're present with them and you're kind, um, but you're not overbearing, but you're not too detached at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's like a balance and um, just linking it to this dependent origination thing. I haven't sat for very long, um, and so I'm still learning about how to deal with physical pain something happened today where it really changed my orientation because for ages I've been having this ache at the bottom of my back and been in agony um, just trying to work out what to do and I was just um, having a pain desire to move pain desire to move, pain desire to move Mm. over and over and over and I thought well I've had that I I don't want to carry on doing that and instead I just actually went into the pain itself and just, I was almost like it was weird. It, my my perspective was almost like, a, the best way I could describe it is like a scientist, but one that really cares about what it's looking. What could looking at? Yeah. So it's like I was really curious. I was like watching it. it was like, what are you doing? Hmm. What are you doing now? And what, and what do you want? Hmm. And kind of taking care of it in a way. And hmm. that just really <laughs> totally changed. I mean, it, it stopped. I didn't have it after that. <laughs> But
0: that really changed quite well, a lot. My here mind. we have a wonderful description of what you're going to be doing with Vedana. This is exactly what you're doing. You're actually staying with it and looking at it. Yeah. Rather than simply reacting to it. <clears throat> the thing with pain is it's, it's the double dart that the Buddha speaks about. Yeah, and it could be mental pain, but since you raised the issue of physical pain, it's not only do we have the physical discomfort pain, whatever it might be, we then have this automatic tendency to amplify it by magnifying it with the mind. And the magnifying of the mind comes through resistance, resisting the pain. And actually what we do is we intensify it by resisting it. And this is much more, um, and again it kind of relates to your attachment, detachment thing, it's much more relaxing towards it. Not that the pain will necessarily go away. For example, if you have chronic pain, it doesn't mean by doing mindfulness it's going to go away. What it means is you cease to amplify it. You, know, you cease to. Uh, it's a bit like you know, having toothache, and you keep probing it with your with your tooth. And there's a consequence of that you know, with your tongue. And there's a consequence of that. You make it worse. You know, of doing that, and that's what we're doing. That's the, if you like the second dart that we put into it. Not only do we have the dart of the pain, we go boom, and throw another one in, which is you know us going, oh, I don't want this. This is not nice. Don't like this at all. You know, so it's kind of relaxing to it. It's much more. It's it's attentive to it, attentive to its changes, to its moods, you know, to yeah, because pain doesn't generally remain all of one intensity. It's many different moods and shifting and sensation. You'll find it's just simply with sensations. You know, And some of them will be discomfort, bound to be, because you're sitting for long periods of time. So you're going to be uncomfortable sensations in the leg. In dealing with that, what you're dealing with actually is the shifting aspects of it. Yeah, the shifting moods, is one way of putting it, of that discomfort and observing that you begin to see, observe it's, it's arising and falling I know I keep using words a lot rising and falling um, because sometimes it will change character completely you know, sometimes a sensation or a pain will perhaps slip into something that's pleasant which sounds odd but it slips into something that's pleasant and then it goes back into something which is unpleasant And then it might slip into something which is neutral. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Now all of that I think is an intense engagement with it. But it's not a resistance to it. It's much more of a relaxed engagement with the the sensation. So mindfulness really is bringing that relaxed engagement to bear with a quality of attentiveness... To what is actually happening, not what the mind is thinking is happening. So it's a very close look at it. Detachment, tends to me, is being standing back. You know, there's a lovely phrase in one of James Joyce's um, short stories where he said he was an outcast from life's feast. And it always seems to me that that's what you become when you become detached. You become sitting on the edge, looking at everybody else having a good time. You know, and actually mindfulness isn't about that. It's actually Bringing to life, life, by being very engaged, but in being engaged in the correct way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the closest—if I just add that,
1: to that—the closest I can parallel to, in terms of my own life, is being in a loving relationship. Hmm. Actually, in terms of how it wakes you up. Hmm. Yeah, um, I know some people say no. It's, it's, it seems a little bit. I like get it. it Maybe there's problems with relationships, but I, I see it's very related
0: to. Uh, I would tend. I would tend to agree. It's certainly coming into a correct relationship with whatever the phenomena is. Yeah, you know, and you're talking about something very specific. But coming back to the whole notion of sensation you're coming back to a relationship which sees it as it is. Not through a miasma of resentment and resistance and you know, um, aversion and all of the things that we build into it, but just seeing it as it is. And often seeing something as it is is not as frightening as we think it is. And the thoughts itself and all the thoughts that we bring to something such as pain, are far more painful than the pain Mm. (laughs) itself. And and we're talking about physical sensation, but that goes to mental stuff as well. Okay, I really do think we ought to draw a line, because it's now ten to (laughs) nine. So we have ten minutes before the next sitting session, so... If you could please ring the bell in, well, not many minutes' time. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.